Well, let's uh, go ahead and pray together as we uh, continue. Father, we do acknowledge that you are the one that we praise. You are the one that we adore. You are the only one who is truly worthy to be worshipped. And God, we recognize that there are so many good things in this world, so many blessings that you've given us. And God, it is easy for us to get distracted and to cause our eyes and our minds and our affections to move toward those things, those people, those material possessions, those positions. And yet, God, we come before you today acknowledging that you are truly the only one who is worthy to be worshipped. You've given us hope and purpose and life. You've given us your word. And so, God, I pray in these next few minutes as we uh, humble ourselves and submit ourselves before you, before your word, God, I pray that you would speak to us by the truth In your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in our minds and in our hearts and bring to the forefront of our minds those things that we still yet need to submit, those areas in our lives where we need to allow your sanctifying work to happen in us. Speak, Lord, I pray, for your servants, your people, your children are listening. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want to ask you a question. How do you engage a godless culture? How do you engage a godless culture? How do you engage with truth, a culture that celebrates lies and deceit? What role does morality play in a culture where promiscuity is celebrated? Where does goodness and charity exist in a culture that is fueled by greed? Now, it may seem like I'm talking about America. And if the shoe fits, well... But I think these are some of the challenges that face the Christians who are on the island of Crete in the first century. I think this is some of what a young pastor named Titus was dealing with. And I think this is some of what prompted the Apostle Paul to write the letter that we know as the epistle or the book to Titus. The letter that we're going to consider today. So if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open it, let me encourage you to open to this small little three-chapter book called Titus. It's near the last half of the New Testament. If you start in Revelation and start going forward a few books, you'll eventually get there. It's, it's right after 2 Timothy and right before Hebrews. No, right before Philemon. Sorry, Philemon is next week, and that's even smaller. So if you find Philemon, you're, you've been blessed. But let me just give you a little bit of background. You see, Paul... The Apostle Paul, who wrote many of most of the books in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul likely wrote this letter to to Titus in the late 50s in the first century. Now, Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts, the, the book that really chronicles a lot of Paul's missionary journeys. But many commentators think that Titus began following Paul around his third missionary journey. They began traveling together. And some... Um, And it's quite possible that Titus was accompanying Paul on a voyage to Rome. And they got to this stopping point on the island of Crete. And Paul left Titus there to to disciple and to establish the churches that are there. Now, this island of Crete is a long, narrow island uh, just south of, uh, you can see it there in, in the Mediterranean, just south of Greece. And culturally, Cretans believed in a variation on the Roman pantheon of gods. They, they, you know, all those gods that we get like with um, Zeus and Jupiter and Hermes and all those guys. Well, they believed in a, in a variation on that. One of the things that they believed is that their patron god was Zeus himself. They, but except, except they had some variation on that. They didn't believe in Zeus like everybody else, like all the other Romans did. And so in their stories of Zeus, 
what they found is that Zeus was kind of a conniving, greedy, deceitful, womanizing God. That was the deity that they worshipped. And so because that was the deity they worshipped, if, if God, if their God is going to act like that, then everybody else was going to act like that too. And so you have these people who are trying to emulate their, their patron God. And so they're acting just like he would. They're deceiving people. They're acting in greedy ways. They're being unfaithful in their marriages. In fact, Paul quotes one of their own philosophers in, in Titus 1 verse 12 when he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Wow, is that damning. So Titus, as he worked to organize the church, he was working against a culture that was completely antithetical to everything that Christianity stood for. He was working also against some corrupt leaders who had adapted Cretan greed and manipulation in order to instruct believers in a mixture of ritualistic Judaism, Christian liberty, and Cretan prosperity. And you see, this intersectionality of all these things coming together became a danger point for this young church. And so as we look at the book of Titus today, we get to answer the question that seems uh, to, to, to underlie the entire context of this book. And that is, how do you impact a culture that opposes godly values? How do you impact a culture that opposes godly values? And it's interesting, through, what I find interesting about the book is that Paul lays it out in a way that's not... It's not that crazy. It's not bizarre. It's not some fanciful action item. He does it in some very simple ways. And so if you want to follow along in your outline, we're going to see some things that Paul lays out here. And he really begins, really, remember, he's talking to a pastor who's establishing some things in churches. And he is essentially telling Titus, he says, Titus, in order to do this, you need to appoint godly elders. We basically see that in the first chapter. See, remember, Cretan culture, you know, so many of the leaders were sinful and wicked and deceitful because that's what their deity was like. They were simply doing what Zeus himself would have done. And so the standard at the top of society became the model for the rest of society. Sinfulness, wickedness, and deceit permeated the culture. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at something Really briefly, this isn't on the slides, but look at in, in the very opening couple of verses. Paul has his normal greeting. And this kind of gives us some insight into why Paul is writing the things he is writing to this pastor. Look at what he says. He says, Paul, a servant of God and a, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And look at this. And their knowledge of truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at a proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. So one of the things that Paul is laying out is he's trying to tell Titus, he said, look, they are all deceitful people. Lying is very common in Cretan culture. And so what we are attacking that culture with is truth, a God who never lies and a God who gives us truth in his word. And so Paul tells, tells Titus, he says, I want you to appoint godly leaders, godly elders. These leaders in the church will be drastically different from society's leaders. The values of these men would be completely distinct from the values that would be observed in the culture at large. Look at what it says in, in Titus 1 verse 5. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. These men who would lead the church would exhibit godly characteristics in every part of their lives. And it would begin in their homes, in their families. You see, Cretan and Roman culture taught that a man was essentially free to do whatever he wanted to. He could go sleep with whomever he wanted to, whether he was married or not. And culture was okay with that. 
He was the king of his own household. There was no value in fidelity in that culture. And so Paul tells Titus, he says, Titus, I want you to appoint godly men who are different. Look at what it says in in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He's essentially telling him, these are the kind of men you need to appoint to oversee and to shepherd this church. You see, for Christian men and and especially elders in the churches, Paul says that they should be above reproach. They should be blameless. That's not meaning that they're going to be perfect. But he should be a man who is devoted and faithful to his wife. And in regards to an elder's children, they should be faithful and trustworthy, trustworthy and ideally believing. Now, that's not to say that all children of pastors and elders will be believers. Because ultimately, that's up to God to call people into faith. But I think what, what he's getting at here, I think this is really important for, for us to recognize, is that our children, the, the children of elders and pastors, and I would add in deacons that, really anybody who's serving in church, the children of church leaders should not be sacrificed on the altar of the church. He's essentially telling them, these guys need to be godly men. Godly family men. But not only are they to have godly family relationships and make that a priority, but these guys are to be godly in their care for God's church. In verse 7, the first part of verse 7, it says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He's God's steward. The elder is taking care of something that is not his. He is stewarding God's church. And and in this regard, an elder should be blameless and above reproach. And did you notice that? In in those two verses that we just read, verses 6 and and 7, twice Paul tells Titus, these guys should be blameless. They should be above reproach. One of the things that... uh, we've been enjoying doing is going back and kind of watching various Marvel TV shows over the, because we've already been through the whole Marvel universe. So we know how the whole story ends and it's a fun story. Well, we've gone back in, in recent weeks as a family and started watching, um, agent Carter, which is a whole series of shows that takes place right after Captain America is discovered and made and all that kind of stuff. And Agent Carter is all about this young woman, this young British woman who is, who is playing a role as an investigator in a man's world, doing things that only men were supposed to do. And I tell you that because one of the guys that we get to learn about, we get to follow in this little mini-series, is a guy named Edwin Jarvis. Edwin Jarvis is the butler. He is the steward to Howard Stark. And and Stark trusts Jarvis implicitly. Everything in his life, he entrusts to Jarvis. His houses, his cars, his planes, his inventions, his money, everything. Jarvis has access to everything. There is nothing in Stark's life that he doesn't trust Jarvis with. Jarvis is essentially a steward of all of Stark's possessions. And he does it with honor and he does it with dignity and a really cool British accent. That's not to say that as elders we should speak with British accents, but we are entrusted in that very same way with the things that God has entrusted us. This is not my church. This is not Carl and Brian and Vern's church. This is God's church. We are simply stewarding what God has blessed, what, is, what God has called us to steward. You see, so many of the cultural and society, societal leaders were selfish and they were swindlers. They were in it for them. They listened to that radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me? And the elders of the church should not be that way. You see, there's no room for greed or selfishness or deceit among elders. They won't be perfect but they will be drastically different than society's leaders. But the elders will also demonstrate godliness in their demeanor. Paul lists several uh, personal qualities that elders should and should not embody. 
As for qualities that they should not embody, it almost seems like this is everything that a Cretan would embody. Think about this. All the things we talked about, the people of Crete, look at what he says an elder should not do in in verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And in contrast to that, he continues in saying, this is what an elder should be like. He should be hospitable. He should be a lover of good. He should be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Each elder will exhibit these qualities in varying degrees, but generally they should be drastically different than society's leaders. But finally, an elder should demonstrate godliness in their firmness in the truth of the word. Some of the other leaders in the area, the Jewish background Christians, were teaching strange doctrines and genealogies and more. And it was unsettling to many of the younger believers in the church, causing division. And so elders in God's church should not delve into strange myths or fanciful doctrines. And as we said last week, we have one text. We have one source book. We have one word to guide us. Titus 1.9 says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Think, hear that again. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, let's think briefly about some of these doctrines that Titus would have been fighting against. You see, on one hand, there were the Judaizers or those of the circumcision party, as as Paul calls them. And, And these are people who believed in salvation through Jesus Christ. But then they also said, you have to obey the law. So if if you were to eat pork. If you were to worship on a day other than Saturday, if you were um, to, if you didn't adhere to all of the moral and ceremonial laws of, of traditional Judaism, then they were saying you, you weren't you aren't truly a believer. And so, elders in the church and the whole church as a whole, they were they were fighting against that. Judaizers saying you must do these things in order to be saved. But like Miss Tammy said, we believe that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. On the other hand, you have this other group of people who are saying, oh yes, yes, you can can believe in Jesus Christ and that is where your salvation is, but it doesn't matter what you do. Believe like a Christian and live like a Cretan and that'd be okay. The challenge is at some point in time, like Tammy said, you have to go through a sanctification process. And if I'm still living like a Cretan, then I must not be very sanctified in my faith. In commenting on this verse, John Stott writes that this word is characterized in a couple of ways. He says, first, it is reliable. It is trustworthy because it is true. And it is true because it is the word of God. And going back to that very first verse that we read, who never lies. Secondly, it is literally according to the dedicate that is consonant with the teaching, namely of that of the apostles. So this is the word that, that they're teaching, and this is the word that we have. They didn't have the blessing of having all 66 books of Scripture. They had the Old Testament, and they had a handful of the Gospels, and maybe a couple of Paul's letters, but all they had with this was this oral teaching that had been passed down from, from, the, from Jesus Christ to the apostles and then to the leaders of these churches. And I think the point the, that the Apostle Paul is getting at is that the elders, what the elders teach and live should be consistent with what has been passed down from the apostles. We have that teaching embodied here in the New Testament. And the elders need that tradition of doctrine in order to teach the church, but also to refute false doctrines. And it seems like what Paul is setting up for Titus and for the churches in Crete is that there should be godly men who embody a drastically different ethic than that of the pagan Cretan culture. They should honor God and their families if they have families. 
displaying the beauty of God's design in marriage. They should honor God and how they humbly and carefully steward the church that God has called them to shepherd. They should honor God generally in how they act, how they're known in community. They should honor God by being consistent and unified in their teaching. And I think this is why there's a pattern of plurality of elders in churches. So that not one person can steer a whole church away from sound doctrine. There's the brilliance of God is seen in that. In that plurality of leaders, plurality of elders. Each elder is to exhibit these qualities and teach sound doctrine, but together they ensure that one is not speaking out of turn or teaching in a way that is contrary to sound doctrine. Which brings us to the next section of Paul's letter to Titus. And that is where he gets very specific and he says, but you basically teach godliness. Teach godliness. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine doctrine. So I want you to imagine this scenario. Imagine that you are a Cretan. You've grown up in Crete. You've lived there all your life. That's all you've known. You've seen the corruption at the highest levels. You've seen infidelity at the lowest level. You've seen it all. You generally get to do whatever you want and you found it largely unfulfilling. And so as you're walking through the community, you're walking through the marketplace, you're interacting with people, and you begin to see this group of people that starts to act a little different. Maybe they're dressing more modestly. Maybe they're speaking to one another in a bit more loving manner. Maybe you notice that as you get to know the families better, that that husband is faithful to his wife, and those children actually respect their parents. And you begin to wonder, what what is it with these people? What is their secret? Because they seem like they have peace. And so someone invites you into one of these, they call them love feasts. I don't know about that, but let's check this out. So they invite you to one of these love feasts and you gather there and they have a special meal together. But then you hear them sing. And this isn't like the drunken bar songs. This isn't like you've gone to where, you know, the hangout place. These are special songs, robust, beautiful. And then you hear them pray. And in their prayers, it's not these mindless mantras repeating the same words over and over again. It's as though they have this relationship with the God to whom they're praying. And then there's someone who comes and begins to teach with humility, with grace, in an authentic and genuine way about the life of people who are part of this community. And as this Cretan, as this outsider, you might come into that and say, wow, this is life-giving. I want more of that. Now, I don't know if that's how it would have worked for the people in Crete. I'm just kind of imagining that. But when it comes to what Paul instructed Titus to teach, he talked about teaching sound doctrine. Remember, he told him, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he said, this is how you live. Doctrine must be applied. I'm sorry? Yeah, well, because Paul was ordained by God and he was called out in a special way and he was a man of integrity who lived what he believed. <laughs> I know because the Bible tells me so. But let's continue because here's, here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul encourages. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he tells Titus to speak to different groups of people and he begins by talking to older men. So if you consider yourself older, you might think, well, am I older or not? Basically, in their society, if you were 30 years or younger, you were a young man. So if you're 31, you're an older man. If you're 29, you're a young man. So you can find yourself in that mix. But here's what he says to these older men. And look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 2. It says, older men are to be sober-minded. Now think about that. Older men are to be sober-minded. They're to be level-headed, not given to pride or rash thinking. They're to be calm. In response, gentlemen, 
How are you in that way? Are you calm in the way that you respond to circumstances? Are you to little bits of rebellion? Are you calm in the way that you respond to craziness that you hear in the news? Do you respond with anger? Or do you devote them to prayer, trusting that God is in control? But, but secondly, he says, not, older men are to be sober-minded. They're to be dignified. And this refers to the way that um, acting in a way that deserves or demands respect. Brothers, are people wanting to respect you because of the way that you act, because of the way that you speak? They're also to be self-controlled. Remember, this was a society where promiscuity reigned supreme, and so they could do whatever they wanted. Men, are you demonstrating self-control in your actions, in your words, in your thoughts? They're also to be sound in faith, not given to myths or mysterious theories, but secure. Secure. They're also to be sound in love. This is unconditional love, not, not emotionally motivated, but marked by God's love for us. Men, how are you doing in showing love to others inside and outside the church? Those who are different than you, maybe a different ethnicity or different background or different socioeconomic status. They're to be sound in steadfastness, faithful, constant, consistent. Men, is there a steadiness to your actions or are you inconsistent, prone to whims? I really wish I could adequately communicate how drastically these qualities, how drastically different these qualities would be from Cretan culture. But Paul is essentially saying, teach these men to be this way. Teach these men to live this way. But then he, so he sets the older men aside, he said, teach them this. And then he talks to women, he lumps all women together. And he essentially says this in, in Titus 2, 3 to 5, he says, older women, again, there's that 30 year old age mark. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So let's take this apart just for a moment. Older women are essentially to be reverent they're toward God. They're, they're, or as some, some translations say, they're, they're to be becoming of holiness. They're not to be slanderers and not gossiping. Oh, it's so fun to gossip. It's so fun to talk about people behind their backs. And yet it's unbecoming of a woman of God. He also says that older women are not to be slaves to much wine. I don't think he's forbidding drinking, but he's saying don't be addicted to it. Don't need it so much. But then he says older women are also encouraged to, to, to teach younger women about how to live. Let's go back and look at that just for a moment. Beginning in verse 3, it says they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, if you think about that, think about all the things that Paul might be talking about in relation to Cretan culture, telling these young women, hey, this is how you should act. And I want you to imagine what if the, the culture was entirely opposite of that? Think about how drastically different that would be. And I find it interesting. I don't know why Paul didn't have Titus teach these things, but he told the older women to teach those things to younger women. I kind of suspect that, that Titus was on the younger side. But I think there's something rich and profound in multi-generational relationships among women. 
You know, the life experiences that older women can share have the ability to ease tensions. Those young years, I think I would be, a, if I had the energy, I would be a way better father and Danielle would be a way better mother of toddlers now than we were in our 20s when our kids were little. Because we're given to irrational thoughts. We're given to swings and moods and just craziness. And I think that that, that balance of, of having an older woman speak into the lives of a younger woman is brilliant and is profound and is calming. And so, younger women, I want to encourage you, who do you need to reach out to? Go out for a cup of coffee. Hey, we're actually sort of able to do that now. Or a cup of tea if that's what you like. And just listen. Ask, hey, what was it like for you as you were raising your kids? What struggles, what joys, what successes, what sorrows have you encountered? Older women, who do you see around you who could benefit from your experience? Not to preach at them, but to lovingly nurture them. Share what you've learned, how you've seen God move. So we've talked about older men. We've talked about older women and younger women. There's a group that has been left out so far. If you're under the age of 30, raise your hand. I'm not going to raise my hand because I'm not there. So here's the thing. Here, listen very closely what Paul tells young men. Paul tells young men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's all we get. That's all you get, guys. Be self-controlled. You see, I think part of what Paul's getting at is that the impulsiveness of youth can be a hindrance to our spiritual growth. But it's so fun being young. Just going on a whim. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. Paul simply urges that young men control themselves, their passions, their propensity to fight, their curiosity in places that is unbecoming a man of God. In fact, one of the reasons I think that Titus might be a young man is because right after he tells, you know, teach young men to be self-controlled, he talks specifically to Titus. Look at what he says in verses 7 to 8. To Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may not be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. You know, much the same way that Paul urged Timothy not to let anyone look down on him because he was young. I think Paul is including Titus in this encouragement for young men and urges him as a young man to be an example. And while I think this encouragement is for Titus and his ministry on Crete, I think it's a good word for all young men to be men of integrity of respect, of speech that is clear. Watch your language. Don't let anyone look at your life and think, I thought a Christian acted differently than that guy. And this guy says he's a Christian. So young men, consider the words of Paul. Be self-controlled, but also... Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. But there's one more thing that Paul says, because keep in mind, we're trying to look at what is Titus to teach these people. He says, teach sound doctrine. So it's old men, older men, younger, or older men, older women, younger women, young men. And then he gets to slaves or employees. Now, in this case, Paul's not endorsing a kind of chattel human stealing that was the blight on history that we experienced here in America for several hundred years. The fact is that slavery in various forms has been around, and at that time, most likely 80 to 90% of the citizens of, of Roman society were slaves of some sort. Some of them say, I, I just can't do this on my own. I, I'm, I'm going to sell myself to you to be your servant. Others were taken in times of war. 
And so I think it's important for us to think about Paul's encouragement, not so much from this slavery mindset, because for us, that has so much baggage. And in many ways, slavery itself, because it's been abolished nearly everywhere worldwide, it's important for us to think about it more as employees to employers. Paul's encouraging these slaves, these servants, these employees to be submissive and pleasing to their employers. Not stealing things and essentially honoring God with their work. As Christian employees, I believe we should be the best employees that our bosses have. We should be the best. They should see the hand of God in our work. They should... Employers should want to look for Christian men and women to fill their workplace because they know they're getting the best bang for their buck. Honor, integrity, honesty, hard work. And so Paul gives Titus these things to instruct the Christians. And he is essentially communicating that what we believe about God and our life in Christ should be lived out in our families and in the marketplace. He says basically that our faith is more than mental ascent. It's more than just a new way of thinking. It's more than that. And our, our faith is a new way of living, antithetical to culture. Look at what it says in verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God has saved us by the blood of Jesus Christ, not just so that we can escape separation from him and so we can have some eternity that is our blessed hope we get to look forward to that but also so that we can be zealous to do good right honorable holy things here i want to point out one one other thing before we move on to the last chapter and and that is this did you notice how many times the phrase self-controlled came up in those passages elders We're to be self-controlled. Older men are to be self-controlled. Young men are to be self-controlled. Young women are to be self-controlled. All Christians, in this last section that we just read, all Christians are essentially to be self-controlled. You see, our society would like us to think that, well, if you feel that way, you should do it. If you want it, you should get it. If you have this desire, go get it with all the gusto you can. There are, our society would say, there are no limitations. There are, there's nothing restricting you. And the word of God says no. Not that God doesn't want us to have fun. Not that God doesn't want us to enjoy things. But we have to recognize that in our flesh, in our bodies, in our carnal minds, we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. Everything in my body, everything in my mind wants to be rebellious against God. So that's why I think Paul says over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, be self-controlled. Cretan culture was a culture of deceit. (laughs) Our culture is a culture of white lies. Airbrushed images. We like to post the best things about us on social media so that more people will like it. Our culture is one of padding resumes and accomplishments to make us look better than we really are. And yet as men and women of God, we need to be self-controlled. Speaking the truth about who we are in God. Cretan culture was a culture of unbridled passions. Men sleeping with whomever they wanted, no matter what gender. Young women sleeping around. And our culture is one where sexual expression is distorted as many people explore any number 
of variations of sexuality. And while some may struggle with lust, with same-sex attraction, with pornography, as men and women of God, we must be self-controlled. Submitting our lives to the beauty and wisdom of God's plan for sexuality and for humanity. You see, God has ordered relationships and sexuality to give life. And our culture is a culture that is breeding death. We get to reflect God's sacrificial and self-giving love as we show self-control. We could go on making cultural comparisons, but there's one more chapter, one more thing I want us to think about. And and in chapter 3, Paul essentially is telling Timothy, Titus, telling Titus, remind them to live godly lives. Live godly lives. Now, keep in mind, we ask the question, how do we impact a culture that is godless? How do we impact a culture that is antithetical to the world around us? And as if the instruction that Paul gave to Titus wasn't enough for for men and women, he gives some general instructions for all Christians. And in this final chapter, Paul begins to give some insight into how we should interact with culture. And I want to tell you, this has been a challenge for Christians for centuries. How do we engage the culture around us? Do we engage them? Do we separate them? Do we rebel with them? You know, I mentioned this week in the Dear Family that Tim Keller, he wrote this little tiny book. And I, I encourage I wish I could get some for, the, for today, but I want to encourage you to get it. It's called How to Reach the West Again. And he, he seeks to lay out several things that Christians can do to make an impact in culture. And he, he, he points out some things that a researcher from UVA Revealed something that they he that this guy said over the centuries Christians have tried to do this but here are the three things that that Christians primarily have done now keeping in mind these are not biblical admonitions these are things that Christians have done in response to culture the first thing he says is that Christians have been defensive against culture and seek to dominate it you see we saw this centuries ago in the Crusades. As, as Christians took up arms and they began to go into Muslim lands and began to fight against what was happening there. We also saw this in like the Holy Roman Empire when, when the church and state ruled together. As some have said, it was neither holy nor really very Roman, but it was an empire. We've also seen this in some protests when some churches boycott things like Disney over a stance that a godless institution would have. I think we also saw this a bit in the last couple of years with the rise of what some would call Christian nationalism. So one response that we have is to be defensive against culture and try to dominate, force them to think like we think, force them to believe like we believe, force them to act like we think they should act. But a second thing that, that Keller points out is that there are some who seek purity from culture and withdraw from it entirely. We've seen this in some Christian groups that have set up enclaves for themselves. For example, the, the Amish, they've, they've largely separated themselves as much as they can from society. That's not to say that they're totally bad, and I'm not trying to call them out to to speak ill of them, but I just want us to see, here's a picture that we get to see. But I think there are others, other times when when we refuse to make friends with non-Christians, when we refuse to engage with people around us just because they don't believe like we believe. And I got to tell you, as as someone who who was blessed raised up in Christian, I went to a Christian high school off and on through, I went to a half dozen Christian elementary schools, went to a Christian college, Christian seminary, and my kids have all been gone up through Christian school. There's a bit of that where I'm convicted. I love what my kids have learned, but I also have to recognize, are we separating from society? 
by engaging in Christian education? I don't know the answer to that. My kids are still enrolled in Christian school. But I want you to know I'm wrestling with that because where's that line? Where do we engage? Where do we seek to be there and yet also recognize that God has called us to raise up our children in the admonition of the Word of God? But there's a third thing that Keller points out, and that is to compromise with a culture and by assimilating to it. Compromise. Just let whatever culture says is going to be, be. And we've seen this in many churches today as the cultural narrative gets adopted. I don't know if you caught the news just in the last week, but there are some priests in Germany, Catholic priests in Germany, who have blessed homosexual unions. The Pope and the teaching of the Catholic Church has said, no, that's not right. And yet they have chosen to acquiesce. There's other churches that have elected or nominated, appointed transgendered bishops and priests. It's hard to hear when our society says, if you don't believe this, then you are out. But I got to tell you, there is absolutely nothing in the Word of God that endorses that agenda. There is nothing in the Word of God that endorses that lifestyle. So how should we respond to culture? Should we rebel? Should we force adherence to biblical values? Should we avoid culture altogether? Should we capitulate? Should we just, oh, give up? We'll just teach the things that aren't controversial and pretty soon we won't be teaching anything. But it seems like Paul is saying that there is another way and that is to live godly lives in culture. Look at what it says in Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every work, to speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You see, if if we are submitting to rulers and authority, then we are certainly not rebelling against it. So in, in as much as we can obey the governing authorities around us and still obey God, I think Paul's admonition is obey, submit. In the way that we show perfect courtesy toward all people and act in gentleness, seek peace, and speak about people, we are certainly not disengaging from culture. He's not telling us to run it. In fact, to, to to speak in a way that is honorable and in a way that we are ready for every good work guided by the word of God. We are not capitulating. Live godly lives in the culture. In fact, Jesus Christ said the very same thing in, his, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five sixteen. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to God, glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the Apostle Peter, when he was writing to, to believers who had been scattered about because of persecution, he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Guys, this is a delicate walk. It's a fine line to walk. But I want to encourage you. Walk it with grace, with humility, with love. Live a godly life in the culture so that people see the life and health that there is in the Word of God, in the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, in the hope that we have for eternity. As we close, let me just encourage us to keep this in mind. You see, Titus was sent into a culture that did not reflect godliness in any way. And in order to counteract that culture, 
Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, told him to appoint godly elders. We need to make sure that we have men and that we're raising up men who can be godly examples for other believers. Examples in their lives that match what they teach. We also need to be, we need to teach believers what it means to be godly at home and in the marketplace. And then to live godly lives in a godless culture. I don't know that Titus ever saw the Cretan culture changed. Frankly, that wasn't his goal. His goal was to preach the gospel and to teach people how to live. And I got to tell you, I don't know that we will ever see our culture return to godly biblical values. I certainly hope so, but I got to tell you, I'm not holding my breath. But I do believe that as we continue to raise up and appoint godly men like Carl and Vern and Brian, who can live as godly examples for us and instruct us in godliness, and then challenge us to live godly lives in this godless culture, we will see lives impacted one by one. This house and that house, that house, that person next to you in the office or on that next Zoom screen. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 to 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, God showed us His love by sending His Son we are declared righteous in him by faith and are being renewed and sanctified. And thankfully, we have this glorious hope of eternal life on the horizon. So keep living godly lives in the godless culture in which we live. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the ministry of Titus and the encouragement that you gave him through Paul. Lord, thank you for the encouragement that it is to us, and I pray that you would help us as we seek to engage the culture around us with the truth of your word, as, it's, as our lives are transformed by your word, by your spirit. Help us, we pray. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.